I'm Megan. And I'm Tyler. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Megan. We're on to grief counseling today. I think we got a big episode in store. I am so excited to talk about this episode. Ooh, uh, wow. Well, I got to tell you, I felt like I was like, how Freudian and psychoanalytic can we get on this podcast? <laughs> uh, the whole episode, I was like, this is our chance mm. to bust out our, like our Freud uh, vibes <laughs> or something like that, or at least our psychoanalytic. Uh... Yes. So that yes. was getting me excited. But I got to tell you, the I remember, I like kind of, rem- how to say this? I never remember this episode. Like, I didn't remember anything. I know that I've seen it before. But like I, it's like so not memorable to me, other than the idea that there's some funeral or something. And so I was kind of not very excited to rewatch it. But I got to tell you, I actually felt like it was kind of complex and rich and like a little more, yeah. had a little more depth. So yeah. I don't know. So I was like, oh, I can't wait to get Megan's thoughts on that. I don't know. What about, what about you? Yeah. I, so I actually, a similar experience that when I come to it, yeah, I don't always find it to be the most memorable one. Um, but then I, then I see it and I'm like, wow, this, this, I feel, this feels like a very me episode because it is so Michael centric. Um, yep. But yeah, I love it. There's a lot going on here. That's both fun. I think one of the interesting things about this episode is that it's like both very poignant and very emotional and also very funny. So I think it's like uniquely capable of striking these two really different notes. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I I did wonder, I was like, is this a Megan episode? I was going (laughs) to text you that because the last one you said was kind of a Tyler episode. So yeah. Yeah. I felt like this was, I felt like this was my turn to fully enjoy. So Tyler, before yeah. we, we're kind of jumping right in, but before we get into the episode of the day, do you have anything from the weekly receptionist? Well, let's walk on over to to the weekly receptionist and see. Oh, we do. Uh, okay, <laughs> so we have an email from somebody that neither of us know, as far as I can tell. Uh, and so this is very exciting. I'm gonna I'm gonna very read it out. So the title <laughs> of the email is. Your podcast is so fine, exclamation point. So fine. Okay. I like this. I know. This like totally made my day. Yeah. Um, Okay. So hello, Megan and Tyler. I'm enjoying your podcast to the point of addiction. (laughs) It's a wonderful thing. How like, how sweet is that? That is so sweet. I might tear up, honestly. I know. When I read it, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Um, Okay, but they have a question. Uh, okay. Here we go. Okay. Can you tell me the pilot extra fine pen model both of you like to use? I did not write it down and don't remember the episode. I've been using <laughs> the pilot G2 fine point for years, but want to upgrade. This huh. is a great, oh, and I should say this is from Eric. So this is a great question, Eric. Um, this is a great question. Uh, so yeah, which which pilot pen do you use? So, and I also wrote down the G2 fine point because I really like to always be exploring my pen options. Um, <laughs> one I really like, just pulled one out of my little pen jar here, is the Precise V5 Rolling Ball Extra Fine. Hold that up. Let me see it. Let me see it. 
That's exactly what I use. That's exactly it. Yeah. But I prefer blue. Yeah. What color yeah. is this? That? Is this is great? Um, this one is green. There's a really nice green. There's a lovely purple. There's red. There's blue. Um, there's black, of course, if you want to go classic. But yeah, really, really nice ink flow. Occasionally, like I recently had a purple one. Um, you know, the thing happens where somehow the ink starts coming out and then it like gets all over your hands. But I think that that's rare. And I feel like they last a long time. They also let you, like they really let you take the ink down to the bottom. I feel like there are some pens where they sort of stop functioning well before you fully tapped that well. You know what I mean? I do. Um, yeah, so these are this is a this is a beautiful pen. And thank you also for the G2 Fine Point recommendation. I really want to go check that out. Yeah, I'm gonna check that out. Um yeah, I was gonna ask you actually when we talked about this on the episode, um, and I meant to put it in a revision and regrets, but uh okay, so I use that same pen. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Jen is always teasing me about in our relationship is that the the blue ink is always getting everywhere so we it's gotten on sheets it's gotten really? on pillows it's on my favorite chair it I, like bags that I've had because like and I think part of it is I sometimes I'm reading and I fall asleep and the pen <laughs> or I set the pen down and forget that without a cap and it like kind of leaks out or gets sucked up by whatever cloth or something and then also I definitely am in a rush and I'll put the pens in my bag without a cap on. And like, so I often am finding blue ink everywhere all over my hands and shit. Does this ever happen to you? Tyler, I, I think this is operator error. <laughs> this is on you. I mean, don't. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. That's that's not on the pen. Like it, it occasionally, okay. occasionally happen where it'll get the ink leak, but Yours seems like a unique case. The fact that you'll leave it open on a fabric surface. Okay. Okay. Fabric is absorbent. So like if it starts touching the tip of the pen, it is going to soak it up. I can't believe honestly that you would disrespect such a fine point pen by just throwing it into your bag without the cap. I mean, like this has a really thin little metal end. Um, wow. Tyler. <laughs> yeah, that's on you. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, so we're pen shaming. That's what we're doing. We're pen, we're, we're we're pen shaming. Like, Office supply shaming is a big area for me. I, I am well aware. Well, I've let got me strong opinions, and I think that all mine are right. <laughs> uh, so just one last bit of. Um, also, Eric. let me just say, I want Eric to follow. Wait, Eric, you said right? Yeah. I want Eric to follow up on the pens. Try out the. Precise, I remember the title, Precise V5 Rolling Ball, Extra Fine. And let us know your thoughts. I'd be very interested also to hear the comparison. Are you going to try the Pilot G2 Fine Point and give yeah. a little review for Eric on yeah. the pod? All right. Yeah, I will. Okay. Maybe uh, we should have like an office supply section of this <gasps> I love this. Well, because <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about you the other day. I, I got some, you know, like I was at a campus event and they gave out uh, like post-its. And mm. so I've been using the post-its. And for those who don't, um, we don't have a visual component for the podcast, but behind Megan are like a whole series of post-it notes. It's very like, it's gorgeous and intimidating. And uh, <laughs> and so anyway, I've been thinking about you because I've been using the post-its and I was like, oh, I need Megan's kind of like 
analysis on post-it notes and all that. So yeah, I think we should add a, maybe is it a warehouse, is the warehouse section? Oh yeah. <laughs> Cause that's where we would go down to get the supplies, right? Like, um, I guess so. There's also that supply shelf, you know, that they've got where they have all their post-its and their paper. There's just an open shelf. I noticed today there was a little thing that said, was a box that said like somebody had written on it three by five index cards or something like that. But I wrote down gorgeous and intimidating because I feel like I really want that to be my office design aesthetic. (laughs) Gorgeous and intimidating. (laughs) That's your whole vibe. That's your whole whole vibe of my um, office office design. And so I'm going to keep that in mind next time I'm like, once I take these post-it notes down and I'm aligning new ones, I'm going to, I've just got to always remember the goal. Yeah, that's right. Uh, just the last bit of Eric's email, uh, Eric writes, I listen to your episodes with a timer when I go to bed. It's a fun way to drift off to sleep. Oh. And the sign-off is all-inclusive, Eric. All-inclusive. Uh, <laughs> I've never heard that before. All-inclusive. Is that a... I I'm wondering, is that an office reference or is that just a, like a lovely, you know, generous... I don't know. It feels like yeah. a hug to me. I don't know. It's very nice. No, I do find it to be a lovely sign-off. The only reference to all-inclusive I can think of on The Office is when um, Michael goes to Sandals, Jamaica. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it was a reference to that, I would be like, Eric, you win. You win the day. That's amazing. <laughs> um, wow, thank you for your email. I love that. Yeah, thank you so much. Please write back with your review of the pen. And uh, to anybody who would like to send us a message and hear it on the podcast, you can send us an email at thebestofficehourspodcast at gmail.com. And you can always follow us on Instagram at office underscore hours underscore podcast, where you can post a comment and we will, um, we're happy to mention that on the podcast as well. So yeah. Should we stroll over to revisions and re- does revisions and regrets have a location in the office? Ooh, that's a good question. I have an idea of where it could go. Where could it go? Well, okay. Either <laughs> HR, like it could be Toby's area because. Oh yeah. You know, you're like kind of addressing things on the other hand, accounting because we're like being held accountable or we're giving an account, you know, Ooh, um, yeah. we're addressing I, the, the, you know, some yes. error or something like that. So I don't know. What, what, what do you think? I find that account, the accounting and giving an account, being accountable. I, I think that one really, really connects for me. Let's call it accounts payable. Let's head over to accounts. Accounts payable. payable yes. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I listened to the last episode and thought, I was like, I know I'm going to have revisions and regrets and I can't remember any. So I really <laughs> need to write this shit that down. problem of, um, yeah, forget it. Because sometimes I'll do like the, you know, the listen back before I post it, but then it's been too long. And so I've forgotten the things that I thought I'd mentioned. But I do have one thing really that's just a regret and it was an omission. We didn't talk about in the last episode what is probably my biggest cringe moment in the entire office. Oh. And that is when Dwight comes back from the dentist, Crentist, allegedly. <laughs> Michael <laughs> looks in his mouth. So, you know, he like gives him the M&Ms and then Michael looks in Dwight's mouth to see <laughs> the crowds or whatever he supposedly got. Um, and Dwight, so Michael's like kind of tipping back his head and looking 
closely into his mouth and Dwight is like loudly and emotionally breathing onto his face Mm. and it makes me so uncomfortable I hate it and I wanted to know how you felt about this moment uh like the kind of violation of personal space this kind of that that aspect of it you know, I don't think it's even that the personal space violation bothers me. I think it's that I feel violated by it. <laughs> like, it is just disgusting. <laughs> so it's not about Michael being, it's actually not about Michael violating Dwight's personal space. I think it's about Dwight breathing on Michael. <laughs> I, uh, well, let me, as a, as a, as a question to this, how do you feel about breath on you? Do not like it. That is wild. Really? Yeah. Jen is exactly the same way. And uh, (laughs) like, not only does she not want my breath anywhere near her, uh, she will sometimes wear a scarf so that she doesn't feel her own breath on her. I actually remember that. You're telling me that about Jen. That is so amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, that is interesting. So, um, so she would agree with you, but I kind of, I don't know, like breath doesn't bother me. Even, even bad breath. You know, it doesn't especially, but you uh, would you would put your face on Dwight's mouth like that. <laughs> but is the this is right when this is the scene where he's like eating the M&M, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um if I recall correctly, what kind of grosses me out in that scene is the the sound of chewing. Like I find that mm. sound to be yeah, I don't know if that's misophonia or whatever that is called, that kind of I don't know. That's what grosses me out. So less the breath and the closeness and more just the like, we're not listening to anything other than somebody. Yes, I definitely, I definitely have that feeling um, with chewing too. Like even sometimes when it's me, they're like particular foods where there's a sound that is disturbing. But yeah, with the Dwight thing, like it doesn't matter to me. Like if, if the breath smells great, like it smells like m&ms or mouthwash or whatever it might be like there's just something about that that um makes me makes me cringe so it's kind of interesting because like the cringe social stuff that's awkward that's like the signature office awkwardness doesn't make me miserable like it makes me really interested i always like those parts Mm. um but this this is hard for me yeah um I have a question for you, but maybe I should save it for later. No, quick question. If we were, if we ever finished The Office, mm-hmm. have you thought about what our next show would be like uh, in terms, because you said the kind of classic cringe dimension of The Office. And to me, yeah. I'm like, whatever it would be, it would have to be something cringy that makes yeah. me uncomfortable. Um, oh, well, then but- that makes me, I hadn't thought about this before, but that makes me think Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh God. Oh, I cannot watch that show. I've never like, I've watched like five episodes of that show. Really? It's yeah. So difficult for yeah. me. Um, I love that. And that entire podcast would be kind of like I do with Michael and me defending Larry David, because I think he's right. Like 95% of the time. Fair enough. All right. All right. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Parks and Rec would be fun. That would make sense. Um, it's such a sweet show though. It, it like, is a very sweet show. Maybe is it too sweet? I mean, I love it, but I'm just you know. It. We're not doing Star Trek. I'll just say that right oh, up front, man. <laughs> That's a non-negotiable for me. Well, I had one question. I was like wondering if you've ever watched Shit's Creek. 
by any. Oh yeah, I love Schitt's Creek. Because I was rewatching some Schitt's Creek episodes, and I had forgotten how cringy a lot of the humor in Schitt's Creek is. Like, there's a real edge and a real awkwardness to Schitt's Creek that I had forgotten. I was like, oh, it's such a sweet show, you know, blah blah blah. And watching it again, I'm like, oh no, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that one. I I think about that. All right. Well, we'll see if we ever get there. Uh, yeah, we've got ways to go. <laughs> yeah, you all you have to understand how hard it is for for Megan because it's like you want to record now, and I'm like, ah. <laughs> so we'll see. Should we um, should we dive in? Let's dive in. Okay. So here's our summary: episode season three, episode four, grief counseling. Michael grapples with his fears after learning that his former boss has died. Jim bonds with a new coworker. Tyler, where do you want to start us off today? Um, okay. Well, I get this is a weird thing, but I legitimately okay. So I started the episode uh-huh. watching the cold open, and I'm like, "Where's Jim?" And I had completely forgotten <laughs> that Jim is in uh, Stanford. Um, yeah, because Ryan's at his desk. So I just don't. It's interesting when we watch when we watch these with such a gap between them. Yeah. Sometimes I forget kind of overarching plot stuff. And uh, I really felt the absence of Jim in this episode. Mm. And I think it was just interesting to see Pam in the opening cold open be the one doing the prank, basically, like giving Michael a hard time. Yeah. Um, And uh, you had made an argument many podcasts ago that part of the appeal of Pam to Jim is that she is a jokester or a prankster mm-hmm. or, a, or that, you know, she's that that is part of their bond. Mm-hmm. And I really felt that here. Mm-hmm. Like uh, even as on the one hand, like just narratively, they need somebody to take the place of Jim. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, I was like in the absence of Jim, she's kind of conjuring Jim by, by doing these kinds of gags or whatever. That, yeah, like they're it's just an interesting writerly choice that they're not having Ryan, for example, step up and become yeah. silly or, or whatever. So yeah. so that was just my initial thoughts when it started. I had forgotten about Jim. And I think this gag is really, really funny. It reminds me of Austin Powers. Yes. Uh, let's talk about let's describe what it is for okay. listeners who don't watch the episode first or don't watch the show. Since yeah, yeah. Which apparently there are some of you out there. So <laughs> Uh, Michael has clearly set up a bunch of paper reams and he is pretending to go down to the warehouse as if he is walking downstairs. How do we, how would you describe yeah. it? So from their point yeah. of view, so it's like he builds like a half wall almost with the boxes of paper. And then, yeah. Have you ever done this before, by the way, Tyler? I have tried. I'm not very good at it. I haven't built I anything to. to do it, but like, you know, yeah. but I would like that- go behind the couch. For example. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, where like you walk forward, but like you're taking a step down gradually. So it's supposed to look like you're going downstairs. You could also do, you know, the elevator version where you just start going down and then you like look at your watch and you keep going. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, so he starts out and he first says, he starts it with Ryan. He says, hey, Ryan, can I get you a pencil from the warehouse? And when Ryan first like tells him no, but then he turns and realizes what's happening. Um and he's just kind of like, oh, okay, we're doing this. But Dwight, I was watching Dwight and thinking about his reaction. And he shows this just kind of exaggerated 
pleasure. Like it's very expressive. He starts looking at the camera. He starts clapping. And I kind of wondered if there was some compensating there because this is just after he has betrayed Michael. And so I wondered if he was kind of like playing it up a little bit more based on some guilt for having betrayed Michael in the past episode. Oh, interesting. Dwight is really over the top in his reaction. It's so <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. Um, I love it as much as he does. I mean, I think this yeah. is, I thought it was very, very funny. Yeah. So Michael, so the first thing, right, he goes down for a pencil. He gets the pencil. Um, then who asks him for the pen? Uh, Dwight. Okay, Dwight asks him to go to get a pen. Love it. So he goes down. He like reaches up into Stanley's pen cup, right? Takes the pen. And then we have our Pam who says, hey, Michael, could you get me some coffee in the warehouse? <laughs> I just love that. And, and then he, um... he does like that army crawl too. Like once he does the stairs, he does that like, you know, crawl fully on the ground. <laughs> Which haven't we seen that already twice in this show? Because Dwight does it when there's the fire. And that's it's called an army crawl, right? Where you're like all the way down on the ground. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Gets himself into the kitchen, comes back, brings Pam coffee. And when he gets up, Pam asks, cream and sugar? And you just see like his face when um, she asks that because he's like, Ugh. but at the same time, he needs to do it. I feel like yeah. he really yeah. follows that, that commit to the bit idea. Speaking of bit, what was so interesting about, because I was trying to figure out how are we going to draw a relationship between this cold open and the story that comes mm. later. And we'll have to yeah. tease that out as we go. But in terms of how this cold open represents the rest of, or, you know, other things that we've been talking about over the course of the show, this brings us right back to your argument from season one that Michael is primarily trying to be a comedian, like mm. that he is not a boss, but he's an entertainer. And so <laughs> he literally says, I am like Bette Midler in For the Boys, got to keep the troops entertained. Yes. Um, so I looked up For the Boys. I've never seen it. Have you seen it? I've not. Um, all I, this is what I got is it's a 1991 American musical comedy. This is from Wikipedia traces the life of Dixie Leonard, a 1940s actress singer who teams up with Eddie Sparks, a famous performer to entertain American troops. And it sounds like, uh, there's a character in there. Uh, I think it's the, probably the Eddie Sparks character who is generally believed to be based on Bob Hope. So, yes, and I remember you saying that Bob Hope is like, or Michael says Bob Hope is like one of his comedy idols, right? Yeah. Um, but I thought it was so interesting, number one, that he compares himself not to the Bob Hope character, but to the Bette Midler character. Yes. Um, and then also, this is, again, like in the last episode, as, as I recall, I mean, not only was it called a coup, which is, you know, like a military term, but it's like, oh, time to go tell the troops, right? Like about... Dwight taking over. We kind of talked about that metaphor yes. of the troops. Oh, that's uh, interesting. And it came back here, but now it's about like, you know, entertaining them, not breaking the yeah. news. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that's a great connection. Have I agree. I thought this, the, have you ever seen For the Boys? I have not. I have not. Um, 
I do feel like we should maybe do some annex episodes where we watch these references yes. and talk yes. about them. But I also, yeah, I thought it was fascinating that he he picks Bette Midler, like the picking the woman entertainer. And I went and I watched the trailer for it, and she's sassy and seductive and flirtatious, and so that was also kind of interesting. And I guess maybe that's part. There's a um, like a kind of seductive part of entertaining um, mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily have to be sexual but that's like that is trying to seduce but like trying to get people's eyes and trying to get people's interest and get them desiring more um so i just thought that that michael's kind of gender flexibility in aspirational entertainers was was cool yeah 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 so should we go to the news then that he that he receives yes all right so ed truck Ed Truck. Have we met Ed Truck yet? Have we ever met him? We met Ed Truck. So first of all, the name, just want to recognize the name Ed Truck as being a hilarious name. Um, It's perfect. but Especially because he was killed by a truck, right? I know. Allegedly. I want to ask everything. This this information comes from Creed, so I want to ask everything. But um, he came when, he came in the carpet episode so actually, he keeps coming up in these episodes where Michael gets, um, like, starts really thinking about his meaning, his own significance to other people. And because when in the carpet, when there is something mysterious on the carpet, he calls Ed to ask, right. you know, else done this to you? And so he comes out and he talks to him by the dumpster. And he's like, we don't all need to be family, right? Yeah. Like, Some your workers can be your coworkers, your friends can be your friends, your family can be your family, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So Jan calls, says to Michael, so I wanted to let you know that we lost Ed Truck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he first, when he thinks he starts going to his Rolodex, I mean, we lost him is like a weird way to say it, but he goes to his Rolodex, says, oh, like maybe I have a cell. And then Jan has to clarify, no, Michael, Ed died. He, I thought his reaction to this was super interesting because he first, when he walks out to the office to announce it, he says, I just received a call from corporate with some news that they thought I should receive first. My old boss, Ed Truck, has died. Yep. So it's like he's kind of, you know, proud there of being the insider. At that point, he's not like he was very surprised by it, but he's not showing a lot of emotion about it. Mm-hmm. But then it's when Kelly says, oh, my God, that's such terrible news. You must feel so sad. And she comes and kind of holds on to Michael's arm and it like it turns him, you know, if you kind of watch his face and he's like, oh, yeah. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting switch there. And I was curious if there was anything you thought about it. And also yeah. you might have to withhold this, but I was thinking about your recent logic for choosing Dundies. And that was like about a pivotal person for the plot. Oh, and this shit. moment made me think like Kelly, actually, because if she hadn't said that, he probably would have gone on. Or would he? I don't know. Of kind of not having this profound feeling about it, but her kind of introducing that—that that it's so terrible and you must feel so sad—seems yeah. like it sets him onto this different track. Uh, damn, I had not really noticed that in terms of the narrative um, or the plot importance of Kelly's comment. Mm-hmm. But you're totally right, and that's really interesting. In terms of like, okay, so my 
something that I want to unpack with you over the course of this conversation about the episode is some a kind of complicated dynamic that I'm still teasing out of my head, but it seems as if, and I got to tell you, like, I actually think this episode might be brilliant. Like, mm -hmm. I think it might be maybe not my favorite episode or whatever, but I think it might be one of the smartest or most insightful episodes into the dynamics of grief. And, yeah. and also not just Michael's narcissism, but like our cultures, maybe like human beings, complicated narcissism. So he does not really feel sad. <laughs> and it's Kelly saying, you must feel so sad. And he's mm -hmm. like, yes, I am. It's very sad because he was my boss, right? Yeah. And yeah. there are two like different threads that I was interested in that the, the episode kind of untangles. The first is, as you said, like how when somebody dies that you're not very close to, mm -hmm. there's a strange like, are you allowed to, should you feel anything? Mm -hmm. Are you allowed to feel anything? And but when you mention it to others, it kind of functions as a performative speech act, like an you know, in which yeah. like just the fact that you mention it, people are supposed to be like, oh, I'm so sorry or whatever. So you actually get like attention and care and interest, yeah. um, mm -hmm. which is narcissistic, but also like in supposedly a sign of empathy on the part of the people who are saying it, right? And so there's an interesting way in which Michael doesn't actually feel something initially. He doesn't even recognize it as a loss. Then he does kind of want the attention. Yeah. You know, yeah. come by my office, cheer me up, and goes to Pam to get a hug. So he mm -hmm. sort of recognizes that he can get a t something that he wants always, which is to be the center of attention. Yeah. And I'm not sure, like, where the turning point is exactly um although maybe it's in the conversation with creed or something like we'll have to think about it although but it could be right there when kelly sort of says it or when he says because he was my boss or something but the other thing is like the way in which michael his he, i think he feels i think he feels guilty that he doesn't feel anything so mm -hmm. then he spends the whole episode berating everybody else for not feeling something that they uh -huh. should feel, but that's because he wants them to feel it for him yeah. when he dies. Yeah. And I just, even, and yeah, the show is, a the whole episode hinges on this Michael being alone and loneliness thing, which we'll come back to or whatever, but that seemed less significant to me than, than the, the who, who is mourning properly and appropriately mm. and him wanting mm. to like kind of enforce a social norm I don't know. Yeah. But it's interesting that Kelly is the one who sparks this because Kelly is often fake, right? Or at least it's not that she's inauthentic, but I think that she's represented as emotionally performative or something, either oh. over the top or whatever. So later when she's crying, but it's not actually, it's crying about Ryan. It's not, you know, it's not yeah. about Ed Truck. Um, and so it's kind of interesting that she's the one who performs in the most performative way, like, oh, that's so terrible, like, whatever. Hmm. Um, so she's doing the right social thing, but not necessarily out of any authentic feeling. I don't know. Those, those are just my initial thoughts. Hmm. So that's so interesting. I, I thought, too, that I actually felt that Kelly was very genuine here. 
Mm. I don't know if that's accurate, but it felt, yeah, definitely like it fits in her kind of over, over the top um, level of emotion, but it just, it felt like this sort of quick, sincere reaction. Um, I don't know, but I'm really, really interested in your idea about it, like the way that that language is performative and not in like the the false performance kind of sense but in the sense of the performative language that brings something about mm -hmm. and that actually creates an effect and the way that um said right like in michael announcing this news it's a speech act that produces an effect but then the way that um telly talks about it like produces this emotion in him but like you pointed out his feelings of sadness because i think he does get into this kind of profound existential crisis here about his own death so i do think he gets genuinely also gets sincerely sad mm -hmm. uh and is made to by or like that's triggered by her statement that you must feel so sad um but that it's as, as you pointed out not about the thing that it is supposed to be about mm -hmm. That, I want to go back to the thing you said too about the like narcissism of grief and the way that partly like thinking about someone else's death can bring us to then think about and be imagining our own or like when it's not a person really close to us then it brings about like the imagining of someone who is and so I think there is something really fascinating in this episode in Michael's process of thinking about his own death and will people care? Right, right, right. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know, death is weird. <laughs> There's like a way in which, um, I don't know. I mean, I think on the one hand, I'm gonna get real Freudian here, but like on the one hand, hearing about any death, I think makes us feel a sense of, um, I don't know want to I don't want to say like power but like relief or something like it's not me like or I'm still here or I'm still alive or something like that like yeah um and then on the other hand it has the opposite effects where it's like I I it reminds us of our mortality our finitude you know and yeah. that I won't be here yeah. and um so it's just kind of I don't know there's something very interesting to me about how that plays out in the episode yeah um yeah and what it is when it's someone who is similar to us or who we see as similar to us yes right when we live when we kind of like go through day-to-day -day life not thinking you know that we are going to suddenly die and if you if you hear about people dying right who are in different circumstances than your own it's probably like it's easier to maintain that distance but for michael then when it puts it like the way Kelly wording it because she says the thing about it being your boss right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and like the way that hearing that back because he actually had said my old boss Ed Truck but there's something then like in the hearing it back and that framing of the boss from Kelly that I think builds that sense of like this is the person in my position and this also could be me and then the imagining himself into it I've been desperately trying to find this um essay by Freud that I really like called Our hmm. Attitude Towards Death. Have you ever Ooh, read this? I don't think so. It's been like 10 years since I've read it. So, you know, I'm like quickly skimming through it or whatever. But 
you know, so I'm not going to try to like, re maybe I'll revise and regret it later, you know, when I, <laughs> but, but just what I remember being really interesting about it as a philosophical question was like, why is it, why is it so different when somebody that we love or are very, very close to when they die, we are, we are bereft, hmm. you know, even kind of talks about it as like all our, all our hopes and our dreams and our, and our pleasures are like in the grave with them. And we become mm -hmm. consolable and melancholic and like, filled with grief versus when it's like people that were not close like how is it possible basically that we don't feel anything or feel very little about people that are not close to us oh. and to some degree if i recall correctly like there's something very necessary like we couldn't actually feel that level of attachment to every person even though yeah. we have this fantasy of empathy for everybody uh -huh. like we couldn't survive that way right we would be endlessly frozen if we yeah. were because we've been mourning all the time and yeah. so there is something kind of cruelly necessary about proceeding with your life yeah you know yeah hmm yeah there's something right like that that's what makes it the not not caring that much is what makes life survivable which also makes you think about like what kind of state it can or or like the thinking about death and thinking about one's own death can like put you into crisis and dread and how that is just this incomprehensible thing mm -hmm. and how i'm thinking about your point it's making me the 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 distance from thinking about other people's deaths is making me think about like the kind of day-to-day -day distance that we we live with in terms of thinking about our own mortality, right. but then there being like these breakthrough kinds of moments or experiences that force a really direct confrontation with it. And what's so clever about the episode is like, okay, so Michael says to Creed, you must have you really thinking when he's like, oh, what? <laughs> yes. uh, the, older, yeah, the bigger the chances you're going to die. You knew that. And Creed's like, Ed was decapitated, which, I mean, like, let's assume for the second that he is, that he was decapitated. It's really funny that it's like, it goes from a a kind of potential natural cause, like, oh, we'll all die. Yeah. That is kind of generic to hyper-specific, like, yes, we will all <laughs> die, but we're not necessarily going to die drunk on Route 6 under an 18-wheeler. And... um. But it seems to upset Michael even more, which is, I don't know quite we'll have yeah. to why, but it's really fucking funny. The Creed, <laughs> you know, confuses a human being with a chicken and, and Michael is the one who's trying to be like, oh, this has, this must have you thinking you must be so, Yes. but it's actually Michael who is. And then later in the episode, Ryan is going to make this joke of like, when I was five years old, I was too old for like the pet funeral which I thought was a little, I was like, this is a great representation of who Ryan is. He's like too yeah. cool for everything. He is pure yeah. irony. He has no sentimentality or whatever. Yeah. And, but I was like, okay, so <laughs> instead of thinking Michael just as like kind of a narcissist, the episode is like, Michael's a child. And now we're watching how a child slowly comes to grips with mm. <laughs> the reality of mortality because we think of children as somewhat uh oblivious to that mm -hmm. fact right mm -hmm. um anyway i <laughs> made me laugh hmm. the you know that point about it creed like the way that this it's making me kind of think about the timeline and what the timeline is of michael's emotional 
shifts and transformations. Because you had mentioned the point about how, like with Kelly, one of the things he realizes is that he can get a lot of attention. So like he can go over then and hug Pam. <laughs> so when he goes and he asks her for a hug, and then after she hugs him, he kind of like holds her out, you know, with his arms. She's at like arm's length, but he still has a hand like on her shoulder and her waist or something and just looks at her in a way that's too... <laughs> I don't know, that might be kind of a way you look at someone who you're close to when you're hugging them in this context, but like not your receptionist. Um, But like then when does the kind of really existential and thinking about his own death part come about? And it seems like actually that might be the turning point there with, um, with Creed. And the thing about dying on the highway is that it really can happen to you at any time. And the way that we survive driving on highways is by not thinking about that. Right, 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 right. But so it does make it a possibility for him. And similarly for the bird, like the bird was living a perfectly fine life and was suddenly surprised by this window and died. Yeah. Before it's time. Um I mean Dwight is a good Dwight and Angela is a nice little moment, I think, where it's like Dwight tries to talk about what he wants after death with Angela and she just says I don't want to talk about this and just shuts it down and represses and denies and then yeah. his thing is when I die I want to be frozen and if they have to freeze me in pieces so be it I will wake up stronger than ever because I will use that time to figure out exactly why I died and what moves I could have used to defend myself better now that I know what hold he had me in so- <laughs> Well, that Dwight imagine the kind of death Dwight imagines for himself is in a fight. Is yes, like 100% hand hand with a guy. <laughs> he, the way that he seems then to cope with the fact of his death is that he is going to be frozen and will come back to life. Yeah. I just want to laugh the fact that the first thing he, the thing he says to Angela to talk about what he wants is, if my head ever comes off, I would like you to put it on ice. <laughs> <laughs> this is one other tiny observation but at the vending machine he talks he goes in and talks to her when she's at the vending machine and she appears to have a tiny hello kitty sequin purse <laughs> which i noticed for the first time this time watching it is just this cute little interesting purse so i don't know uh it doesn't suggest though the little hello kitty purse doesn't suggest a woman who's ready to have a conversation about freezing Dwight's head on ice. Right, right. right. Um, Jan is really interesting in this episode. Jan is kind of, uh, you know, it starts off sympathetic. Yeah, I, yeah. Know, I understand how you feel. I really do. Would it be helpful to give everyone the day off? Mm-hmm. I found that whole scene just really amusing. You know, the way that she slowly loses patience. What the hell are you two talking about when they start imagining first a statue then a robot <laughs> and then she's like call me when you feel like having a real conversation yes uh, i don't know it just made me laugh i don't know if i was there was a part of me was like would jan say that would she be that forceful but i don't know i feel like we've seen her slowly losing patience with michael and getting uh-huh. more irritated so <laughs> but in that thing he said michael says we're talking about how to properly honor a man who gave his life as regional manager of this company. <laughs> and what's interesting about that is, again, like he's not, he's talking about himself. He's not talking about Ed yeah. Truck. Like, and it's kind of interesting that they picked Ed Truck, a character who did say separate work 
family and friends. So yeah, that's a good point. Presume the Ed truck would not want this. Yeah. Mourning. We often think about like what whatever the process of mourning or honoring the dead as like an honoring of their wishes, but Mm -hmm. also the process of grieving and mourning is not about them at all, right? It's about Mm -hmm. us and about what we need. And so I felt like this episode kind of staged that in an interesting way by picking Ed Truck, (laughs) who, I mean, one might even argue may have been suicidal in his actions, (laughs) if not consciously, then accidentally, you know. Um, But but would he want his honoring to be about you know, he whatever he did he didn't give his life as regional manager but that's how michael sees himself yeah and it's also a kind of it, to go back to the opening bit about the troops it's a it's a militaristic hmm. um, frame it's like he gave yeah. his life for this job you know in the way that we yeah. talk about like cops who fall in the line of duty or yeah. soldiers or whatever they gave their life to protect the country or whatever the fuck you know the narrative so anyway i just thought that was yeah. really interesting language um because hmm. that's how michael sees it. that's why he doesn't want anybody to go home you yes know? and I, there is something alienating about work death i have to say hmm. like I, I don't know i was curious if you had thoughts on that like how the workplace is or is not a kind of alienating space i don't know hmm the thing the thing that got me thinking is your attention to that line like gave his life for and it does feel like there's there's this kind of um work i don't know tension where you do give like ed the discussion with ed is about finding, like trying to have some kind of balance where you're actually not giving your entire life for it and you're not depending on them as your family. But there is this struggle where even if you don't sort of emotionally treat it that way, you are giving a great deal of your life to work. Mm -hmm. The level of seriousness too, of taking that work as a life or death thing, I think also comes out in his... um, reference to Martin Luther King. And he says, you know, we have a day to commemorate, we take a holiday to commemorate Martin Luther King and he didn't even work here. And so also that idea of like, well, first of all, the the kind of grandeur of that, but the idea of like, you know, giving your life for a cause that is, um, you know, transcendent and that is bigger than yourself and that is going to have you remembered for um you know for all of this time afterward but yeah. kind of putting michael yeah there's something so i don't know so interesting and weird and even kind of thinking about and drawing that alignment to, to his own importance and like what it is to give your life for a cause mm. or lose your life for a cause or have it taken from you violently taken from you um for a cause so I don't know it's just an it's just an interesting reference where there's kind of a lot going on in there well and then so I thought this was really interesting Michael he's like um well he's imagining how or can you imagine how much blood there was if it happened right here it would reach all the way to reception probably get on Pam Phyllis okay that's enough Michael what Stanley we do not want to hear about this Michael <laughs> Well, you know what? I didn't want to hear about it either, Stanley, but I did. And now I can't stop picturing it. He leaves work, 
He's on his way home. Wham! His kappa <laughs> is detated from his head. You just spit on my face. Well, you know what? There's something wrong with you. There is something wrong with everybody in here because we've lost a member of our family and you don't want to talk mm-hmm. about it. You don't want to think about it. You just want to get back to work. Mm-hmm. And so I, like, there's something interesting to me, you know, picking up on what you were saying about like, okay, is it that <laughs> first Michael is he can't stop thinking about he can't stop picturing it which Mm -hmm. is an interesting compulsive why like why can't he yeah is it because of you know our minds don't want to think about death and so now confronted with it there is something traumatic and we can't kind of get over it or whatever that's Mm -hmm. what he thinks but (laughs) at least for phyllis and stanley it's partly like i think they're like i don't want to hear about you know, violent, gross things, and I want to get back to work. Whereas Michael reads that as your as repression. Like mm-hmm. you, you can't face, you're denying something. Whereas, like, I think they think I this doesn't mean anything to me, or this doesn't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And like, what does getting back to work mean? Like, I, I don't know. Like for them, they didn't know it. Well, Phyllis worked with him, but like, I don't know. What are you, it really cuts to the core of like, what is the relationship you're supposed to have with people at work? And Mm -hmm. he narrates it as we've lost a member of our family. And it also narrates it as he leaves work, he's on his way home. But like, Ed Truck was already retired, right? Yeah, that's a good one. He wouldn't have been leaving work. So this is this way he's narrating his own death into Ed's death. Yeah. And seeing them then not care about it. And I think imagine, right, like them just going back to their work if this were to happen to him. One of the ways too that he's picturing this is when he's looking, like he's pulled out an old um, Dunder Mifflin newsletter (laughs) that has a picture of him and Ed Truck (laughs) from when Ed was his boss. And he's putting like a piece of paper over Ed's head to like look at what does his body look like without its head. But I just wanted to talk about how Michael looks in that image. This actually is going to take us on like a slight side branch, but let's go. Well, first of all, the caption, like the the kind of headline that's there is Michael Scott achieves top sales honors for Scranton for the third straight quarter. So this is giving us a little reminder that Michael actually was a really good salesman. So Michael does have skills, but the way that he looks so he has long hair it's like kind of mullety but more i'd say like long woman's hair he has short sleeves so he wears like the kind of button-down shirt that dwight wears but it's white short sleeve shirt blue and yellow striped tie a blue fanny pack and he just looks so ridiculous and I love how it gives us just this little glimpse of Michael in these sort of middle yes. years. Yes. And I was thinking about what is this mysterious phase of Michael's life that's between his really early life and who he is now? Because we have, from watching Fundle Bundle, the show he was on, we have an <laughs> as a child. And we have people drawing attention to like that being how his mom dressed him. We've had the reference to him in high school and Phyllis says that everyone thought he was gay because of his ties and his matching socks. So he had this like well-dressed past. Now he's always at work in a suit. 
But in the middle, he was wearing a short sleeve work shirt and a fanny pack with long hair. As a kid, he had it right, like yeah. kind of wet, like slicked and combed. Yeah. Was this a wild face for Michael? What was going on here, Tyler, in Michael's past? It really looked very uh, hippie-ish in a way, or some something on you know definitely like this is his his wild era or something. Um, yeah. Although the fanny yeah. pack, I suppose, undercuts that, but yeah, hair is awesome. <laughs> It's amazing. Do you think that this was Michael in the 90s? Do you think this was like early 90s, Michael? I was thinking maybe, well, just based on the fanny pack, I was like, okay, 80s or, not, or late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. but um, I and don't remember. Go he's ahead. Referred, I was just going to say, he's referred to Dunder Mifflin in the 80s. I, I don't think it could be that he was there then. But do you remember there's a time when he says, like, you should have seen Dunder Mifflin in the 80s before they knew cocaine was bad for you. <laughs> they moved paper. <laughs> so I don't know where to, like, position him on that. But it just makes me think there's this whole um, empty space kind of where we have, yeah, where we have young Michael, we have current Michael. But I am so curious about this fanny pack Michael. I, it's, ama it's an amazing but also in that same scene, what he's doing is taking a piece of paper and sliding it over Ed's face <laughs> to see what his his body would look like decapitated, I presume. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, I thought, I, I thought there's a double reading of this where he's he's also like blocking out Ed's face mm -hmm. and I think imagining his own in Ed's position or something like that. Cause this is a moment when Ed, when Michael is not yet manager, but he will become manager. And so by blocking out Ed, it he gets to kind of inhabit both. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know, something like that. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm looking back. So I took a picture of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching and I'm looking back because as he does that, yeah, he's the way he slides the piece of paper doesn't go over both of their heads. So it's like, it goes over Ed's. Now Ed is wearing something that's more like what Michael wears currently. Right. And there's Michael's face and his face looks, his face in this picture does not look happy. He looks kind of, I don't know, scared, a little disturbed, a little upset. Like it's kind of hard to identify a little baffled. Like it's hard to identify the emotion on his face, but it is, it, it feels like it could be the face of Michael staring into his own death. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's an interesting, I, I do feel like the show, the episode is asking us to think about why, why we don't want to think about death. And mm -hmm. is Michael right that, that these people around him don't want to, mm -hmm. and he is kind of the more ethical mm -hmm. person who's trying to create a scene for grieving huh. or is he, is this all just narcissism? Mm-hmm. And it's really all just about him, his loneliness, his fear, his anxiety, whatever. And he's projecting that onto all of them who are right, who are kind of more appropriately like, yeah, that's sad, but, you know, let's move on. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Because there is definitely something weird about, I don't know if you've ever met anybody who kind of claims a more like privileged relationship to like, I don't know. 
like I've definitely been in situations where somebody has passed away and like somebody who knew this person very little hmm. is like, oh, this is so devastating. You know, and it's like you guys hmm. hung out twice, like, but you wanted <laughs> to claim a priority or hmm. a relationship to grief that yeah. feels to me somewhat maybe inauthentic or something or anyway. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the episode is staging that a little bit. Um, yeah. And it, of course that gets articulated best in the grief, uh, the literal grief counseling moment when Michael gets them in a circle and they throw the ball around and they have to name somebody important and have to say how they died. <laughs> You may cry if you like that is encouraged. Um, and I will just say, by the way, okay, I actually kind of, I, I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, but he says right before this, there are five stages to grief, which are looking at the computer, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And right now out there, they're all denying the fact that they're sad. And that's hard. And it's making them all angry. And it's my job to try to get them all the way through to acceptance. And if not acceptance, then just depression. If I, if I can get them depressed, then I'll have done my job. There is, of course, like, that's just funny. But I remember taking a class in psychoanalytic theory where it was like depression. It's, it's an interesting way to think of depression, not as the problem, but mm -hmm. as like an achievement. Like that you actually want to arrive at depression and that like depression is part of a process of, of whatever, whether it's grief or empathy or repair or something that like, you know, and so when he says, if I can get them depressed, I'll have done my job. I actually had this moment where I was like, is that true? Like, is that correct? You know, like, I mean, hmm. from his point of view, I think it is, but it also might be true if the, if if we're to take seriously the idea that they are denying something, then yeah. then depression would be an achievement because it would mean feeling loss or feeling, I don't know, some, yeah. some something turning inward. Yeah. Because it, because it would be about really facing it, like really yeah. facing a reality that is there rather than thinking of it just as like an illness or something that needs fixing that it is actually a, a necessity or that it is like a kind of like a real real living because yeah. it is looking at the truth of the thing that has happened and so nobody quite gets there uh dwight ate his twin uh, <laughs> michael lost um uh ed truck and then uh let's see pam talks about uh uh what is it? Um, what's that movie? Million Dollar uh, Baby. Million Dollar Baby. Ryan does um, Lion King. <laughs> and and what's his face? Uh, Kevin does Weekend at Bernie's. And that's when Michael finally realizes that they are just reciting movies about death, but not actual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is a way of, you know, like deflecting through humor michael though is he is before he gets onto it with kevin like as he is listening to pam and listening to ryan he's listening so well mm. like the, i find the way that he's leaning in the way that he's like really looking at them really taking what they're saying seriously i found kind of beautiful <laughs> and you can just see the desire in michael for having really serious conversations 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then he's getting denied. Here. I mean, I actually think there's something, I don't know. I don't know. There's a part of me that's like, Michael's right here. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and then he's just on the verge of like getting something uh, important, not only about humanity, but like the alienation, the existential dread of like death in the era of capitalism. Like, mm-hmm. so he says in this scene, uh, um, we have, or Angela says, we have a lot of work to do. And he says, yeah, well, you know what? The guy who had my job has died and nobody cares. And he sat at my desk. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I think there's something specific about the fact that, you know, it's like, this is such an impersonal space. I think about this a lot, like in my job, you know, where it's like, it's been the same offices, the same building for over a hundred years, you know, and I don't know the people who yeah. had the office before me. And I think a lot about like all of the bodies that have been through <laughs> the hallways and mm-hmm. how, you know, we have a scholarship for one in one faculty member's name or whatever, but like, I don't know anything about that person. And there have been times where I researched some faculty who, you know, were here 50, 60, 70 years ago. And I feel like a sense of awe and pleasure in like, oh my God, like I'm part of some Hmm. genealogy or, you know, we're part of some bigger institution that is not just about whatever's happening today or tomorrow or Hmm. whatever, but like, but, but that's not how capitalism works, right? Like capitalism is always about like the present and the near future. And if you fall, like we're going to hire somebody else instantly to replace you because roles are replaceable. Like, mm-hmm. unlike, uh, I don't know, other kinds, like if you lose your partner, or your lover, yes, you can replace that role, but you can't replace that like person. Yeah. Right? Whereas like the boss, the manager, like it's not really about the person, it's about the position. And mm-hmm. um, so anyway, I, I feel like he's like on the verge of seeing just how alienating his, the company really is. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know. Uh, I love to I love to know that you're bringing some Michael Scott energy to your workplace, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> I felt most sympathetic to Michael in this episode, and I felt mm-hmm. like, yeah, he's yeah. ridiculous, but he's there's an emotional sincerity. I mean, I I don't know. Yes. Would you make the counter argument that this is all just his own narcissistic bullshit or something? I don't know. No, because a couple things. I think you're right. I think there is emotional sincerity here. And I also think that this is a kind of, I don't know, you maybe call it narcissism, but that we all have. And that is this complicated relationship to our own death. Yeah. And so so I think it's showing something that like we don't all necessarily play out as much as Michael is. But I think it's there. Like I think that something's happening to him that is a bigger human thing. And that is real. And can we talk about the bird? Yeah, well, let's do it. How this kind of ends up playing out in the bird and going to the bird funeral. So Toby tells Michael, so Toby's kind of like trying to make Michael put it into context. And he's saying something, you know, like just this morning, I, I saw a bird fly against the window and die. Michael's reaction, he takes this so seriously. And he says, how do you know? Toby asks, what, Michael? That the bird was dead. Did you check its breathing? 
Toby says it was obvious. Michael, was its heart beating, Toby? Did you check it? No, of course you didn't. You're not a veterinarian. You don't know anything. And then he runs down, he runs out into the hallway, down the stairs. He's making this kind of like, I don't know, sighing, breathing, distress noise. And you know, I love running in hallway scenes. I love, I think love I running <laughs> shows on this. I don't know why, but I found it so delightful. And I think this is the thing about this episode is that I both feel very profoundly for Michael here. And I really feel the emotion of it. And it also is hilarious. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he chases down this bird and then goes to check it. I love when he, how he picks it up and like holds it to see if he can hear its breathing or its heartbeat. And Dwight is like, don't put that by your head. It's full of bacteria. Um, but yeah, I think Michael, and maybe part Does of it. say birds can't give you diseases or yes. something? <laughs> I wanted to look up like when avian flu. I was just looking that up. Yeah, 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 yeah. When was that? Um, All right. But this makes me think about maybe that thing that I think is not like just narcissistic of Michael, but that is kind of how people work more generally is that part, like that there is this relationship between profoundly feeling someone else's death and also thinking about your own. Yeah. So I think like I think he really feels deeply about this bird. And part of the reason for that is in thinking about and feeling his own death. But I also think his care for the bird is real. I do, too. I think. Well, OK, so first I'm going to like be annoyingly uh, psychoanalytic today, but I. Yeah. Well, I kept thinking about did you, did you ever read Joseph Roach on mm-hmm. surrogation? Um, mm-hmm. Like I'm going to you know, not really do a good job on. But he kind of talks about how, like, when, and in fact, one of his examples is like somebody retires or dies in the department and, you know, like someone kind of has to take on the role or the function that that this other person had, but it's never a perfect one-to-one relationship. It's never, and so his, his kind of, it's kind of about the cultural process of, reproduction that happens through surrogates like and people taking on surrogate roles Hmm. um but as far as i recall there are also kind of like surrogate objects to to help us deal with like loss and yeah the ongoingness and so Mm -hmm. um so i kept thinking about the bird as a kind of surrogate for both ed truck but also for michael yeah um and it's an interesting question of what Michael has lost. Like, mm-hmm. has he lost his innocence? And that's what's being um, grieved here. Has he lost his belief that, um, you know, that that he would be celebrated in death or something like that? You know, or has he, has he lost a family member? Is Ed Truck a surrogate father? It doesn't seem that way. You know, anyway, I kept mm-hmm. thinking about surrogates. Um, but I also kept thinking about there's this. I love this concept of the transitional object. Have you ever heard of this one from mm-hmm. Winnicott? And so it's like his Winnicott's famous example is the children's um, blanket or the teddy bear or something like that. And he talks oh. about it as these objects that are invested with fantasy and affect and feeling on the part of a child, especially uh-huh. that enables them to inhabit some place between interior states and the exterior world. So mm-hmm. it's like when the child loses the, like you leave your teddy bear somewhere or loses the blanket, 
the the panic and the terror that the child feels is real because part of them is in it and like it's not just a separate object from them and it's and it's something that enables them to move towards like adulthood or moves towards sociality or something like that so i actually kept thinking of the both the bird and the hers salt and vinegar chips as transitional objects because what's interesting about the chips is like they're absent and they have to be discovered you know they have to be found whereas the bird is like there and it's law like it has to be grieved and let go so one is about kind of like finding something the other is like letting go of something but in both cases the surrogate object the bird and the chips form bonds right Mm -hmm. and so it's like initially um Jim and what's her name Karen Karen's like pissed at Jim yeah Um, she's ready to be because he seems like he's going to be a surrogate of her boss like he's just going to perpetuate the kind of yeah patriarchal sneering thing but then Jim performatively takes on that role by being like okay I'm your supervisor for today but then substitutes the chips as the project and then Mm -hmm. in searching for it or whatever they build this relationship based on kind of humor and irony and it bonds them you can even see jim kind of like get into her a little bit when she starts speaking french or whatever so anyway i kept thinking of that you know it's like once somebody takes the object seriously Hmm. it's silly but it also is enabling and so pam she takes the Mm -hmm. object serious she takes that kleenex box and she adorns it and taking it seriously even though it's so silly it enables a bond to be like formed and lost or something or you know enables him to like move on i don't know tyler this is amazing oh my god i like this episode (laughs) i wish i wish you had like written this down i was trying to kind of make notes this is incredible um so i definitely want to come i think we can take this to come to the chips but I also just wanted to say, I'm really glad you went the psychoanalysis route because I feel like it's just so spot on for this episode. And it feels like one of the core ideas there is about the transfer of feelings, like the way our feelings may be about one thing yeah. are both real, but are often not to- not totally about the thing that we kind of think they're about. So like for Michael, um, it's like it's processing something deeper and more difficult than the actual death of the bird. Like on a different day, he probably would not have cared about the death of that bird. So his feelings are about something else that he's kind of transferring onto this bird, but the feelings are still real and do still become about that bird. If that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the chips thing, though. Oh, I love that chip thing. You called it. Wait, what was it? Um, an a surrogate object, right? Wasn't that transitional or a tra- tra- transitional object? Transitional, object. but it also could be a surrogate object either way. But yeah, okay. So transitional object and that idea about taking it seriously and the way that it enables a bond. One brief point before we get into the seriousness of this is that when, um. Karen goes to the vending machine to get her chips. And this is when Jim comes in and finds out what the problem is. She says that they're out of hers chips, 
But an interesting thing in that vending machine, there is an entire lineup of chips, but they are Hertz chips, H-U-R-T-Z, including salt and vinegar. Um, But yeah, they are Hertz chips and not hers. And the bag looks exactly the same actually as the hers chips that she ends up getting. Although when she gets the hers chips, you can't see the full name. For some reason, I'm really interested in brand labels in the office and how they affect vending machine representation (laughs) but anyway it kicks off this whole kind of quest plot to find hers chips have you had hers chips i have not i was gonna (gasps) add it to the list it's wait what i said we got to add it to the list of stuff we're going to taste test oh add it to the list The list part, I think you said it's it's elitist to not have have eaten her chip. <laughs> no, um, I Quite think that's more of an East Coast thing. It's very much a Pennsylvania thing. Like mm-hmm. I don't even know. Like so, you know, I'm in here here in New York, and you know, I mean, Pennsylvania is only a couple hours away, and you can't get hers chips really? up here, and it drives us crazy. So whenever we drive down to Philly, the first instant we can, we stop in either a gas station or a Wawa and get a bunch of hers chips they're really? different they're 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 just a different kind of chip man and in fact we went to like the hers chip factory for our school field trip like in elementary school we got these cool. chips coming off the conveyor belt like <gasps> crispy i know it was amazing oh uh, that's so fun so tyler what distinguishes the hers chip oh it's a great question your your hers chip the the closest i can bring you to a hers chip is maybe your kind of classic lays potato okay. chip uh, very similar in terms of weight and texture and shape to the chip. Okay, so like a very thin. Thin, and there's a almost a puffiness occasionally to oh, some wow. of the chips. Yeah. there's, yeah. A, But it's the seasoning. I'm telling you, the seasoning hmm. is next level seasoning. And it's wow. pretty intense, um, I think. And on the plain ones? Yeah, I like the plain ones a lot. Jen is a big fan of the sour cream and onion Barbecue. I I think the barbecue hers chips don't taste like any other chip. I don't think there's an analogous one. Um, I'm sure I've had salt and vinegar, but uh, you know. But anyway, I the idea that they couldn't easily just go to any gas station and get these chips though is uh, hard. It stretches. It stretches my uh, what do you call it? Suspension of disbelief. I was like, come on. But isn't it because they're in Stanford? Yes. Holy fucking shit, you're right. <laughs> of course, you're right. Okay. Well, they have to come in from the Pennsylvania warehouse. Damn it. You're so right. Okay. Now it's like, not only is it believable, it's relatable. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very relatable for you. I think Jim's reaction to this, well, both of them, like the exchange when Karen's, he comes in and asks what's wrong. Karen says, uh, nothing. They're just out of hers chips. Their back and forth here is so good. Karen says, but don't worry about it. My snack food does not fall under the umbrella of your authority. And then Jim says, "Mm, that's where you're wrong. I'm your project supervisor today. And I have just decided that we're not going to do anything until you get the chips that you require. So I think we should go get some now, please. Can I just say, I know this is going to sound very strange, but I think I was like, I, I find how to say this. I don't normally find Jim sexy. But when he says the word require, I was kind of like turned on a little. I was like, damn, 
And I don't know why it's something about that word or the way he pronounces that word. Like I encourage <laughs> listeners to go back and watch that three. Okay, seconds. so it's very specific to the word require itself. Something about the phrasing or the choice of the words. Because he doesn't say get the chips you need or get the chips you want or get the chips that you yearn for. Like something. Yeah. Like and I also think the way he pronounced anyway. I was like, okay. okay, Jim is sexy. Yeah, this is definitely this is definitely Jim at his hottest. I I hadn't particularly pinned it down to require, although I thought that it was funny. It's kind of um, like official work language of you know re- there th- of requirements. Yes. So he's a project supervisor, the language of requirements, but just the way that he takes it seriously is so fun and so charming and. You're right that about the taking the object seriously, enabling a bond, like it turns the entire relationship there when he does take that seriously, but in a fun, a fun serious. One thing I was trying to think about, like, what's the relationship between these two plots? Yeah. And one of the things that this is making me think of is the way that both Pam and Jim are taking somebody else's thing really seriously and like making a a story of it sort of of like preparing yeah. for it and um playing it out so i kind of felt like both jim and pam were at their best in this episode man i had not seen that connection but you're totally right because what i find really interesting about pam's eulogy for the bird is that it does take a kind of narrative form yeah yeah i was kind of curious to ask what you thought was reassuring to michael about it or Hmm. yeah so i'll just read it really quick if that's okay Um, pam says what do we know about this bird you might think not much it's just a bird but we do know some things we know it was a local bird Maybe it's that same bird that surprised Oscar that one morning with a special present from above. And we know how he died, flying into glass into the glass doors. But you know what? I don't think he was being stupid. I think he really, he just really, really wanted to come inside our building to spread his cheer and lift our spirits with a song. Dwight, he was not a songbird. Michael, shh. Pam, an impression then. <laughs> Lastly, we can't help but notice that he was by himself when he died. But of course... We all know that doesn't mean he was alone, because I'm sure there were lots of other birds out there who cared for him very much. He will not be forgotten. That's so sweet. Okay. Several things. I think it's just so validating to Michael and the way that she speaks it and looks toward him and then occasionally looks up more directly at his face. Beginning even from the part, um, the way that she begins, like you might think, like, what do we know about this bird? You might think not much. It's just a bird, but we do know some things. So she's starting by taking this like common assumption about the bird and challenging it. So almost like, you know, you might think we don't know that much or people don't care that much about their boss who's dying, but we do know some things and we do care about it. The idea, I think the way she uses humor about the surprising Oscar thing, great move in a eulogy. You know, you incorporate deep, sincere feeling and sadness, but also lighten it and mix it with some humor. Um, So good move there. And the part about him not being stupid, but really, really wanting to come inside of our building is also validating of 
the workplace and of Michael's office and making it an important and valuable place to be and spend time. And then the other thing I just wanted to note is when Dwight says it's not a songbird, Pam saying it's an impression then that adaptation. And this is, I think, a kind of uh, like improviness of Pam. Like she's so quickly comes up with that, that like the bird is doing an impression of a songbird. <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought that that was funny funny too and when you watch Michael his face like tears are kind of building up and this really is speaking to his soul and he is a person who does impressions um right and so she's kind of incorporating his identity or his narcissism there no I don't mean narcissism in a bad way I think we're all narcissistic you know um and then yeah reassuring him about loneliness i'm sure there were other birds out there who yeah. cared very much and will not be forgotten and so i mean it's just interesting that that is what <laughs> there's something very strange about grief where it's like being told that you won't be forgotten or that by saying he will not be forgotten is attempting to reassure us that we will not be forgotten but mm. at a, upon being reassured you're able to forget and go back to work. Like he literally is yeah. like, there's good grief. Let's get, you know, and then they go back to work or something like that. I, I don't know. Yeah. Or I guess it's yeah. Dwight that says, let's get back to work, but. No, um, it is Michael. Oh, okay. Yeah, because so, I made note of that. Dwight Dwight stays to put out the fire, but it's Michael who's the one to say, let's go, let's get back to work. So it seems right. like there's been something very healing about this for him that is allowing him to cope and to move on. I think that's what's so like, heartbreaking to me about grief is that mm -hmm. like you need to move on but moving on is deep deeply sad to me I don't know I don't yeah. want to I don't know like uh, another way that this episode stages like my own personal problems with loss and grief is that uh so so okay you have all of this angst right like does anything matter mm -hmm. you know do I matter will I be forgotten or replaced or all this you know then you have the moment of kind of um soothing or taking seriously and like as you said kind of mixing humor and sincerity and mm -hmm. and in a way that acknowledges and and like allows space for loss and then they move on and then what remains is like the detritus like the um the uh like dwight using the fire extinguisher and it just like we see feathers and fucking uh, whatever shredded paper yeah. and all of this kind and of stamping stuff. out the box stamp it out and then like go sweep it up and like i think that there is something being done there on purpose i i do i really think that it's like the show is i think often more on the side of ryan than it is on the side of michael in its mm -hmm. kind of uh anti-sentimentality and something that often depresses me is like leaving I don't you know going to a funeral leaving and like just knowing that like they're about to bring in the the shovels you know or yeah. the kind of brute materiality so like all of the reassuring words and stories and narrative that mean so much to me feels so ephemeral and what remains is this kind of impersonal bleak yeah <laughs> I don't yeah know. but I mean I'm not a person of faith so it's like I don't have some other story to tell myself other than like, you know, yeah, like the bird's just gonna <laughs> become dust. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It really, really is 
something about it. Yeah. Even if you have that, like there, there is just, what was the the phrase you use? Brute materiality. Like there is just this really physical, like practicality of it, of like that there is this body, like that there is this person who's gone, but this physical thing that needs some kind of process to be dealt with. Um, But it's like, typically it's not really the people who have had the loss who are dealing with it. Yeah. Actually, but you know, we kind of think about like you know, funeral home businesses and cremation businesses and stuff like that being sort of like weird or sort of creepy or something like that. But then like, that's a service that is really, really needed because yeah. that just is the reality of death. And so it is very interesting. Like the whole office walks away, but Dwight is the person who's very, pra- who's very comfortable dealing with death in its most practical and visceral forms as a farm boy um yeah yeah one to stay with it and stamp it out but then yell at the warehouse guys to clean up the (laughs) that was really funny too having them watch out and be like what Um, are there any other things that we missed in this episode that we haven't hit on i feel yeah i don't know i'm i'm sure there are but i feel like we have we have covered a lot of things. I think I think I'm Dundee ready. You're Dundee ready. All right. Why don't you lay on me? What's where where do you want to go? Okay. I'm giving out two today. I just have to. The kindness award goes to Pam Beasley. She just is, I think, wonderfully kind, the effort that she puts in to help Michael through this. Like the way that she recognizes how he's hurting and organizes her day then around it. And the attention to detail that she put in with that bird coffin was incredible. So it's out of a Kleenex box, but like she cuts it so that it can open right from a hinge. So they don't have to stuff it through the little hole in the top. She covers that hole. There's a toothpick cross at the end of it. She does the handles on the side, you know, like where people would carry the coffin. I loved the handles. Yeah. Pencils with those attachable erasers on either end. So it looks kind of fancy it was so so good i also love the way she brings in dwight and asks him to play his recorder yes (laughs) so kindness award goes to pam beasley and best emotional performance overall goes to michael scott this was just a stunning michael episode i was going to give mine also to michael scott for the emotional growth award um and i think you know what i've been thinking about is does this character, well, we, I mean, from the very beginning, we were kind of like, can this character change or grow? And what's at stake in that, you know, and what's at stake in that on a lot of levels, like in terms of what the show's saying kind of about human beings, about the workplace, about uh, whatever, toxic masculinity, blah, 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 blah. But I felt like this was a really interesting episode in testing this character's capacity to confront more complicated feelings and I don't know if he arrives at something like empathy at all, but he, he does. I feel like he's changed in this, in this. And, um, and I really agree with him. I like that. He says society teaches us that having feelings and crying is bad and wrong. Well, that's baloney because grief isn't wrong. There's such a thing as good grief. Just get, just ask Charlie Brown. And it's like, I don't know. I kind of think that that's beautiful. And it is, it is a very non Todd Packer point of view. Yes, like very it's hard to imagine some of his previous idols 
mm-hmm. accepting the idea that having feelings and crying is okay. And yeah. uh, so while he is definitely trying to manipulate others into feeling the feelings that I think he doesn't fully feel yet, mm-hmm. by the end, I think that he's starting to actually feel them himself. Yeah. And that, so that's why he gets my Dundee for emotional growth. I love it. Well, thanks everybody for coming on this journey with us. Uh, uh, what's the next episode? Mm, I saw this this morning and now I've forgotten. <laughs> Season three, episode five, right? Yeah, yeah. It is initiation. Oh yeah, I was gonna say I felt like last time was a Tyler episode. This this one also turned out to be a big Tyler episode, though I felt like it was in my my general category. But when I saw what was coming up next, I was like, oh, we've got a serious Tyler episode. Next. Uh, so does that mean it's Dwight centric? It's Dwight centric. <laughs> I'm people. so ready for it. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.